All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, we are back. This is the Morris Magazine Podcast. This is Adario Strange here with... Nick Song. Later, we're going to talk about Mr. Robot, which premiered... Well, it had its premiere on Twitter, and then it had the second part of its premiere uh, this past like couple days ago. So we're going to talk about that. But first, we want to talk about the... The app that needs no introduction, <laughs> the app that basically took over the planet over the last, what, I'm going to say 10 days, and the it's Pokemon... your social feed, everywhere. The yeah, the, the, the app is called Pokemon Go, and it's an augmented reality app. Well, why don't you explain what it is? You, I think you have a basis in this. So this is an augmented reality app put out by a company called Niantic and obviously in partnership with Nintendo and basically you walk around and you'll find that there are Pokemon in your neighborhood and you open up the app you look you look through it and it's like oh there these Pokemon are in your neighborhood why don't you go out and capture them so you'll leave your house or maybe they're in your house it's possible like I found a Bulbasaur behind my tv and uh Basically, you'll see them on your phone, just like a superimposed digital image of a Pokemon in your house, and you'll throw a digital Pokeball at it, capture it, and then, you know, you can join one of three affiliations. I think it's Team Mystic Valor and Instinct, and you can go around and find Pokestops and gyms and depending on what team you are you work with complete strangers to keep a place as a as a gym of your team's color it's it's kind of ridiculous i think the game was released on july 6th and then Mm -hmm. the following weekend you just saw photos of crowds of people in parks looking for pokemon there are stories of people who were looking for pokemon with their smartphone at night and getting uh, mugged because someone tracked their movements. They said, oh, they, they could see someone else was looking for Pokemon in the area. And it was like some dark alley and they get robbed. Uh, there's a story about a woman who was looking for Pokemon and she found the Pokemon. And there happened to be a dead body right where the Pokemon was. Yay. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Yesterday, I mean, there was a story about two people who fell off a cliff in San Diego, a 50-foot oh, cliff, while oh looking for Pokemon. So, you know. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say, you know. Pokemon Mania took over the U.S. I think um, my understanding is it hasn't even been released in Japan yet, and it may be released as we're recording this. It was supposed to come out either Thursday or Friday of this week, but um, when it went viral in the U.S., it still wasn't out in Japan, uh, the origin of Pokemon. But I mean, for me, the most interesting part of this whole thing was that I've been writing about and studying augmented reality for years now. And I'm just fascinated that this is what it took for people to not only understand what augmented reality is, but to actively engage it, understand it. And now, like in just like in just like one week, suddenly everyone knows what do you know how much time I've spent writing, <laughs> like trying to explain what augmented reality is, it's really hard to explain when people haven't like used some, you know, like software that allows you to experience it. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, have you 
played Niantic's previous game, Ingress. Oh, yeah. Well, so we should... How, can you break... Yes, I have. And can you break that down? Like, Because there's a good origin story there. So Niantic's previous game, uh, Ingress, it's very much... Like I think it's very much the prototype for Pokemon Go. Well, we should and we should we should mention that Niantic is owned by Google. Ingress didn't really get mainstream traction. Like there are people who play Ingress religiously. They have tattoos of Ingress on them. I never really got into it because one of the things about these augmented reality games is that they kill your battery life like nothing else. The reason why this whole Ingress thing is relevant is because what they did was they used all the data. So there's a very passionate uh, Ingress game-playing community, but it's not a huge community. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is international, and it is a passionate community. And what they did was they used all of the uh, geo data from Ingress, and they used that to help basically build out uh, the framework for Pokemon. And so that's why when you're going to all these different places, even remote places, mm-hmm. you're finding these Pokemon because this is based on data that was has already been gathered from the Ingress game. So this is like a very clever way that Google, again, let it's it we cannot forget the fact that Google is behind a lot of this. Uh, this is a very clever way for once again Google to kind of use its users to build its platform into something bigger. And, you know, other stories came out this week about uh, sponsored Pokestops, you know, Pokestops. Yeah. So so ways to make money on this. So I dabbled with Ingress when it first came out and it really didn't catch me. Clearly that wasn't sexy enough or (laughs) viral enough to, to get, you know, many people into AR. What it took was fake monster cute monsters that are like <laughs> how old is this damn game 20 it's 30 20, years it's 20 something years but i think that's why it, it it got so big because what you have is a loyal fan base like yeah I, I hear you yeah but okay that's great for people who were fans of pokemon but this took over everyone i mean i think it's important yeah. to like note that like a lot of the people i'm gonna say not a lot most of the people playing Pokemon Go aren't people with histories of Pokemon playing. I mean, this is this is something that just kind of like swept people up because I think the notion of finding these cute, uh, semi, I guess, you know, independently active monsters or cute little monsters in virtual space, you know, on your desk at a park or whatever. And I guess competing with your friends, I guess that notion was fun. But I don't think we can say this was largely driven by people who are existing fans of Pokemon, because if that's the case, I wouldn't have all these people asking me what these different I like. I'm not a <laughs> huge Pokemon Pokemon fan, and I clearly know more about this game than most of the people playing it. You know, well, that's that's a pretty good point. Um, I think that the game and you and I have talked off air about how addictive casual games can be. I think the real key here is that Pokemon is a simple game and it's got cute, like, like you said, it's got really cute characters. Like Pikachu is objectively cute. Um, some, I mean, he's objectively (laughs) cute. He's got those, he's like engineered by the Japanese to be the cutest version of an electric rat that you could possibly have. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause he is an electric rat. That's what Pikachu is. The the whole point of it is that it's ridiculously simple. The concept of it, just, you just want it, it. You don't have to be super smart to play this game. Okay. So, so let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. So Pokemon Go went viral. 
Uh, a lot of people like it. A lot of people hate it at this point. A lot of people are tired. Of, I'm, I'm included in that group. Are tired of it. I don't even want to talk about it right now. I'm only talking about <laughs> Pokemon Go because it's augmented reality and I'm obsessed with augmented reality. Let's just assume, let's guess that this is a flash in the pan viral moment. I mean, at one point they were saying, oh God, I saw a report that said, uh, as of this week, Pokemon Go has more active users than Twitter. I'm sorry, yep. I don't believe that. I think that was based on a similar web report. Then similar web came out with something else that said they had like this graph that indicated that, you know, there were more, uh, current active users on Pokemon Go than Netflix. Sorry, don't believe that. Um, you know, so, I mean, I believe that it's hugely popular. I believe it's a hit. I know it's a hit, but I think some of this stuff is overstated. Nevertheless, I th- let's move forward. Let's, let's move forward and say, okay, so this is a viral moment. Does this mean augmented reality is now mainstream and now we can apply this to all? Can we now make a real life monopoly, you know, monopoly go? You know, where you go to real life locations and, you know, build up equity and trade properties and accrue, you know, value. You know, will Delta Airlines suddenly, you know, put out, you know, Delta Go and there's some sort of like travel game where you accrue, you know, frequent flyer mile points or something like. Do you think that this this viral moment is the thing that will take AR has has effectively taken AR mainstream or do you think this is just a flash in the pan? Well, I definitely think that we're going to see more of this then, especially because, you know, um, I, a couple of months ago, I saw this little short, like a, a video short. Uh, it's called Hyper Reality. It's by Keiichi Matsuda. So you can search that on the interwebs. And it's just like a high concept video of what the future will look like with augmented reality. And it freaked me out because a lot of it was just walking through. It follows this woman on her daily life and she's walking through the grocery stores and things are popping up telling her about what she's buying and all that sort of stuff. But the flip side of that was that ads were everywhere, nonstop ads, like casino ads, Times Square level looking like ads 100% of the time, all the time. And I think that is what we're not talking about when we talk about augmented reality. Yeah, I love that video. That video was, in my view, one of the best short science fiction films, you know, in recent memory. And, I, you know, I, I've imagined that reality myself many times before that video ever appeared. And I, I think you're right. I think we're not talking enough about the dark side of what could happen, because if we just look at our desktop web experience right now, um, this is why people are using ad blockers. And now there's kind of like this big crisis in media, ad based, you know, ad supported media uh, about, you know, OK, well, so many people are using ad blockers. How are we going to make money? Well, guess what? If I turn my ad blocker off and I visit your website, I can barely see your content. You know, I mean, so many pop-ups appear, so many, you know, slide overs, so many things prevent me from getting to your content. Like if I turn off the ad blocker, so many things prevent me from just quickly either watching the video, reading the article that the ad blocker is the only way I can, you know, usually get a quick, uh, rapid uh, experience. Now there are, there's a new technique that some websites are using where they're saying, hey, you know, if you like our content, if you want to support us, please turn your ad blocker off. 
and they give you like this option. But what I found is those websites are generally the websites that don't just hit you over the head with like a million pop ups. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, yes, I do think the dark side of augmented reality and sponsored geolocations uh, and experiences could be, you know, let's say if we get uh, glasses, augmented reality glasses, mm-hmm. um, and Facebook has talked about this stuff. Uh, we already have the HoloLens, which is still in developer mode. So it's, I think it's $3,000 and it's only available to developers. But, you know, it's not hard to see that being offered to the broader public in the near future. So in a future where we have augmented reality, augmented uh, capable, augmented reality capable glasses, it's not hard to imagine a scenario like that video where there's just tons of augmented reality ghost spam. I think you will in very short order see McDonald's go I think you'll see um, travel agencies go. You'll see real estate agencies uh, go, meaning aug- when I say go, I'm saying augmented reality versions of, you know, companies doing uh, kind of an app play that allows people to interact with the real world and their company. So, you know, just imagine if you're a real estate company that offers apartments for rent. You could, you know, basically create an app that allows people to kind of forego the initial broker experience and just explore, let's say, Williamsburg. And you have all these geolocations. And as you go through each geolocation with your app on your phone, the, you know, the uh, a marker pops up and, you know, some graphics pop up to kind of tell you maybe the history of the building, uh, what apartments are available, you know, relevant uh, cool points about the building. And you can just wander around a particular neighborhood and just allow these augmented reality geo points to come up. I think there are a number of opportunities from real estate to travel to other kinds of games to reward uh, programs, you know, programs that allow you to actually accrue points to like win trips, maybe even build up uh, bitcoins. There are a number of different opportunities. You I know. definitely agree that there are a number of opportunities. And I think what you're describing is not like tomorrow future, but definitely near future. I think it's happening. I think it's going to be happening soon. I just don't think that we're completely there with the hardware yet. I think we're not necessarily caught up to what our idea of, of uh, augmented reality could be. Like, I think right now, if we're trying to use the hardware that we have, you're going to get somewhat of a glitchy experience. I think, you know, the battery life isn't going to live out to what it wants to be. You know, you're, you're, data service or like, you know, your 4G LTE probably can't handle how much like bandwidth that's going to take. Well, you know, T-Mobile just uh, decided to offer this kind of special data package for Pokemon Go users that allows them to use more data. So, I mean, look, if we're talking about that video, that concept video, and Mm -hmm. we should be clear that that video was a concept video. It wasn't showing real things that exist. Uh, If we're talking about something like that, Sure, that may be a little bit further into the future, but I think Pokemon Go essentially shows it was like Niantic's Ingress was kind of like the experimental developmental step. Pokemon Go and its virality, the way it went viral over the past 10 days, has proven that this is doable. And it's just a matter of will uh, Google or Niantic allow companies to license their geodata and hook into their system? Because if you, you know, if they don't, 
you know, my assumption is that these companies would have to build their own geolocation frameworks and, and kind of like, you know, develop their own situation. And that would take a little time. But to me, again, that would just be time. That wouldn't be a technical hurdle. So I, again, yes, it's battery intensive. It's data intensive. Nevertheless, that didn't stop Pokemon Go from becoming a hit. So moving on, we also want to talk about um, some pretty unfortunate uh, occurrences in the last few weeks um, with regard to shootings of unarmed, I guess you can say uh, the police considered them suspects. In one case, uh, there was an altercation with a couple of cops. I believe it was in Minnesota and they had him on the ground and he was shot at point blank range. And the belief is that, uh, well, many believe that he was unarmed and uh but there's also some um, – it's been alleged that he had a gun, but there seems to be some doubt about that. And then right after that, there was another incident. Um, I could be getting my locations wrong, but there's another incident where uh, a woman um, using her smartphone uh, showed her boyfriend in the passenger seat uh, apparently or allegedly, according to her, reaching for uh, his gun license. Apparently, he was a gun owner, and I believe the cop asked him uh, to get his license and at least my understanding is the way the story goes is that he was reaching for it. Uh, and when that happened, he was shot again at point blank range and he essentially bled out and died while the girlfriend was there recording the whole thing that got uploaded, uploaded to Facebook, which Facebook promptly took down. And a lot of users had to, you know, put up by hook or hook, hook or crook. We can talk about that later with regard to Facebook. All that said, so then what what resulted was many protests around the country um, from just groups who groups of people who are concerned about uh, police brutality and how police interact with civilians. Uh, also from uh, people who consider themselves part of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And one of the protests uh, that happened in Dallas uh, was going off fine. The cops and the protesters seemed to have a fairly decent uh, interaction. And then a shooter appeared and engaged the cops and apparently killed five uh, police officers. So that led to a standoff. And what happened was uh, instead of, you know, kind of like this long drawn out, maybe a day or two day negotiation or Let's say a human sniper, you know, perching himself on some opposite building and taking the shooter out. Instead of that, what the police, what the Dallas Police Department did was they used a robot and they equipped the, the robot with a bomb and they sent the robot to the shooter's location and exploded the robot. And according to all reports that I've been able to gather, this is the first recorded instance of a U.S. police department using a robot to take out a suspect or, you know, criminal. RoboCop is here. I mean, you know, so let's yeah. I mean, we're putting aside for the moment. These other issues are very important with regard to police brutality, uh, mm -hmm. the unfortunate life of lo uh, loss of life. Uh, of the people who engaged the cops or who were engaged by the cops and then the subsequent loss of life uh, by the cops in Dallas. However, what we're going to focus on is the robot aspect. So I have a lot to say on this, but I want to give you a chance to just weigh in before I, I go in. I think it's kind of scary, but I also just want to bring up what the Dallas police chief said in a news conference. So uh, 
Dallas Police Chief David Brown, he said, quote, We saw no other option but to use our bomb robot and place a device on its extension for it to detonate where the suspect was. Other options would have exposed our officers to grave danger. The suspect is deceased as a result of detonating the bomb. And on a very weird but sort of parallel like level, I think it's the same you know, logic that they use behind nuclear weapons. Where if you think about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, well, what's what's one of the uh, logical arguments that they used? Well, you know, we dropped the bombs and we saved so many lives by minimizing the cost to, you know, our side of, of the Americans. Oh, we minimize the cost of Americans uh, actually going in to the Pacific Theater. And it seems just like based on what the uh, Dallas police chief said that that was kind of their logic as well. Like we saved our police officers' lives and maybe some other civilians too by using this robot because robots aren't quote unquote alive. I think it's a really dangerous and slippery slope to to view like, well, because robots aren't human and because they don't have a life, we can just use them to kill easily. Right. And just, and just to uh, rewind for a second, um, the Minnesota shooting was actually Philando Castle and uh, Castile. And that was the car incident. Um, the other incident was in another location, I believe. So I, can you just continue on with regard to the Japan thing? The, the bomb? Like, I'm, I'm trying to, like, I think I understand where you're going, but can you make that a little more clear what you're trying to say there? I, I just think that, you know, when you kill someone, it, it's, it's, it's terrible and it's horrible. And just making it, anytime you make a weapon, it's like anytime you make a weapon seem easy, like the death doesn't hit as hard because whatever calculus you're using to calculate it, it's 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 really scary. It's a slippery slope. So let's say let's say you just have this bomb detonating robot. What do you do from 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 then on out? Like let's say there's a robber in a neighborhood, a robber who you know by no means warrants a bomb, but you say that you're afraid and police could die from apprehending this robber, so send in a robot with a bomb on it, and boom, you got you got them all out of the way. Or you have a crowd of protesters. Well, what if you don't like those protesters, so you just send in robots in there with tear gas canisters attached to them, and boom, you've neutral, quote-unquote neutralized the potential threat without even trying to be human about it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a slippery slope. Before we uh, go further, I just want to make clear. So the two shootings that kind of kicked a lot of this off was uh, the first one was in Louisiana, and that was Alton Sterling. And that was the one where the two officers were basically, they had the uh, Sterling pinned to the ground and they shot him at point blank range. That was in Louisiana. And the car incident was in Minnesota. And again, that was uh, Philando Castile. Yeah, it is a slippery slope. And I think this is all coming about because of, well, as a result of the militarization of U.S. police forces mm-hmm. um, with, you know, when you meet protesters tricked out in body armor that looks like it's from a science fiction movie and you roll out tanks and you roll out next generation, you know, weaponry, whether it's non-lethal weaponry or lethal weaponry, you're essentially saying at any point, as, a, as the cops, as the police, you're saying at any point we have the ability to wage a ground war on the civilian public. Well, now, if we were in a situation where we had, I don't know, this huge insurgency 
here in the U.S. And there was like this huge issue with some if there was some sort if we were if we were currently mired in a civil war and, you know, local governments felt like they needed to have, you know, army level munitions to battle these insurgent forces, you know, for control of the government, maybe Maybe then, possibly, and I'm not saying yes, but possibly I could see then. But this is just being, this weaponry is being used. These tactics are being used as standard operating procedure. And so it's all turned into this thing where, you know, you have people doing peaceful protests and then stormtroopers tricked out in helmets and body armor and, you know, all, you know, you know, tanks and all types of weaponry. Basically, you know, converging on people with no weapons in their hands who are trying to engage in peaceful protests. So to go from that, then yes, there's a huge difference between that and taking out a suspect, a, da- a dangerous suspect. Uh, in that case, if you've already had f- have uh, five officers whose lives have been taken, I think you pretty much need to do whatever is possible to take that that person out. So I'm not going to say I disagree with what they did. I think that you know if if more lives are at risk, and by the way, this doesn't seem to get reported much, um, non-police officers were also shot in that mm-hmm. incident in Dallas. Um, there's at least one woman who was shot in the leg and it fractured her leg and she's, you know, in a wheelchair for pretty much most of the year. And she actually went on the record and thanked the Dallas cops because, uh, when she was shot, um, like a cop, you know, Dallas cop like went and, you know, went to protect her and tried to get her to safety or whatever. So it wasn't just the cops in danger. It was pretty much everyone. And so they, they needed to like, you know, neutralize that situation. However, and this is, I've been thinking about this a lot. Here's the problem with regard to the slippery slope. We're trusting that the, you know, that these police forces can be trusted with these mm-hmm. weapons. I think the next logical progression is armed drones. You know, do you trust like let's let's forget that. Let's just take it out of Dallas just to like make it a hypothetical thing. Let's take it into, I don't know, Indiana or or Oregon. And let's say you have some big protest. And in that protest, there are some rabble rousers and they seem to be a bit violent. Do like. What stops a small town sheriff who, for whatever reason, uh, has been given the budget to purchase weaponized drones? Uh, what stops that small town sheriff uh, or police chief from deploying the weaponized drones and taking out a human who might otherwise have been negotiated with, cornered? Maybe that person uh, that they that they took out. Uh, because here's the thing: if police only shot people who had already committed, you know, lethal crimes or were about to commit lethal crimes. That's one thing. We already have ample proof now. And that's kind of why all these protests are happening. We have ample proof that there are a number of cops who are maybe a little too, you know, on edge or maybe misread a situation and, you know, basically took someone out who was not necessarily a danger, who had no police record and wasn't, you know, wasn't presenting a real danger. So when you equip these same cops with robots, whether it's a drone or, by the way, I didn't mention. So in this case, the robot was, uh, they call it an F5 model. 
And it, the explosive they used was C4. And the way they detonated it with, uh, detonated the uh, explosive was with a detonation cord, um, once it got close to the armed, uh, killer. To your point, it's, it's, you know, the Department of Justice in 2013 apparently said it had used drones in the U.S. In t- on 10 occasions. And it's just, you know, we don't have, a, a sense of well, wait, wait. I, I know that story, and just to be clear, not armed drones, just drones right. for surveillance. We right, should, we should be clear about that. That's that's one hundred percent true. And um, you know the the Dallas. It's not just the Dallas Police Department that has has robots. You know, there's other departments who have robots for you know bomb. Like you know, if there's a bomb in an area, the robot can get the bomb, and no one has to die necessarily. Or, you know, the Boston police used uh, one tiny robot to try and find one of the mar- – when the manhunt for the, the Boston bombers were on, they used a robot to try and help find that. These are all things that kind of make sense to use them, but we don't have a code or just, like, a sense of when we should be using robots, what's an appropriate use of a robot. It's relatively new, so there's not re- – I don't – at least I don't think I – saw it in my research, I don't think there's like a quote unquote manual for how robots are used in law enforcement situations. Well, yeah. And you, it's interesting because in science fiction, you have the Asimov's uh, laws of robotics and and the laws are meant to tell robots what they can and can't Mm -hmm. do with humans. And those laws are meant to protect humans, but no one is talking about that middle step uh, between, you know, uh, self-aware robots and human controlled robots. So where are the four laws of robotics controlled or, or four laws for robots controlled by humans, you know, or however many laws? I mean, there, you know, again, this is all putting robots in the hands of humans to take human life is trusting that that slippery slope will won't be slippery won't be too slippery that that it'll be uh, a, a situation in which everyone will act responsibly will uh act conservatively and that they will pull back whenever possible and i just don't think that what we've seen particularly in like the last you know 10 20 years uh in our local police forces I, nothing gives me the sense that you know, once robots become ubiquitous in local police forces, that there will be a great deal of restraint used. Yeah. And it, it to me, it smacks of a lack of foresight and a lack of vision in some, in some way, because you could be really proactive about how you define the use of robots in a police force. But who's, I mean, realistically speaking, who's selling the police force robots to use? You know, the fact that they used a robot lethally in Dallas. And if we come up with a set of ethics after this, it's a reactive thing. We're not being proactive about the increasing levels of technology and military technology that local police departments are using. Well, I'm not aware of the exact uh, guidelines, but I do believe that the Obama administration enacted some sort of restrictions on the military gear that mm-hmm. uh, police forces can equip themselves with. Now, I, I'm fuzzy on the details, but I do believe that the the federal government has done something along those lines. Nevertheless, I mean, that's not going to stop, you know, the police forces from moving forward and using the technology at their disposal and sometimes abusing it. So I think, you know, well, again, this is another instance where science fiction gives us a great 
uh, window into one of the dark possibilities. I mean, we can look to RoboCop and in the plot of RoboCop, you know, what happened? Uh, it was a, a corrupt politician who essentially had soft control over the local police department. And he essentially used uh, the department's robots to prosecute, you know, his own, uh, you know, desires and, 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 you know, get his own needs met. I to me, that's now becoming a reality. I hate to say it. I, it sounds silly. It sounds outlandish. But I mean, what else can you call a robot with C4 that was deliberately sent in to explode and kill a suspect? I think in this case, look, I, I think the taking of any life, like if you can take even a killer, if you can take a killer alive and then, you know, bring him to trial, I think that's the best case scenario. But in this case, it seems like they probably had no other choice. And so, you know, I don't disagree with the move in that case. I just think in general, this is not a good sign for the future. So moving on, uh, that's pretty much some of the biggest news we wanted to talk about this week. Now we want to dive into an incredible little show called Mr. Robot. This morning... You bought a tall hazelnut latte, paid for it on your evil corp card. By text, you justified the indulgence to your sister because evil corp gives you double rewards, but those points only accumulate on travel expenses. You're not good with money. I sometimes watch you on your webcam. You cry sometimes. Just like me. Because you're lonely. I don't just hack you, Krista. I hack everyone. My friends, co-workers. But I've helped a lot of people. And so that is a brief soundbite of the world of Mr. Robot, Elliot, and his all... Well, is that a spoiler to say what Mr. Robot is? I'll leave out what Mr. Robot is. Um, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Spoilers for season one of Mr. Robot. If you have not seen season one of Mr. Robot and you are precious, uh, you may want to bow out now. Otherwise, spoilers for the entire season one of Mr. Robot and episodes one and two or uh, parts one and two of the first episode of season two of Mr. Robot. And if you want to binge it super quick, you can go to Amazon Prime and all of season one is there for free. If Look you have you. an Amazon Prime account. We're, 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 so clearly you were like uh, giddy on Amazon Prime Day, yes? Um, no. <laughs> okay. it, doesn't, it doesn't really like fit into how I buy things, but... You know, like if I actually think that their whole, you know, if you want to binge on a on a TV show, they have a pretty great library sometimes. So yeah. go do it. Yeah. Okay. So why don't you can can you lay out like the the rough mechanics of what's going on with Mister Robot? Not not like the whole details, but just what's the general idea of what's going on with Mister Robot? So the general idea is that you're following this. Um, computer engineer named Elliot Alderson, played by the wonderful Rami Malek. And he's he's working at a cybersecurity company called AllSafe, who handles all the security, basically, for this big corporation called E-Corp, who, you know, the show and Elliot dubs as Evil Corp. So you can kind of think of them as, like, Google meets 
Enron or something like that, some something pretty evil. And he basically uh, has to deal with a hack on, on E-Corp's uh, main servers or something like that. And he kind of finds a secret society called F-Society led by a mysterious man called Mr. Robot, played by Christian Slater. And then hijinks ensue in the whole secretive world of corporate hacktivist espionage. Stuff happens. Yeah, and so uh, Elliot is a fascinating character. He's a hacker, and he is like a Mr. Robot is kind of like this guardian angel slash shadow. Uh, I won't, like I said, spoilers, but I'm not going to give everything away. Um, He's kind of like this shadow that kind of hovers over Elliot and guides him and influences him. And we later find out that he's far more than just this kind of uh, shadow, you know, hovering over him. But what struck me about this, and I, you know, I think I told you this, um, when I first started watching this last year, when it first came out, I had to beg people to watch this because the name sounds a little corny, like, you know, before you know what it's about. Most of the actors, other than Mr. Robot, uh, Christian Slater, most of the actors are not well known. And so I had to kind of like really, really promote the show to friends. But once you get in, you're in. This is some of the best television I've ever seen. Uh, it's all shot in New York, and it looks like it. Uh, real locations. Definitely. It's not like Friends, where they have ridiculous apartment sizes. Right. There's no, um, there's no Seinfeld where it's just like a, a Los Angeles lot with a few blocks made to look like New York. This is definitely New York. There are just the cinematography is stunning. The dialogue is stunning. The acting is just this is amazing. It's just an amazing work. And, you know, I'm glad it got renewed. And we're now on season two. And so season two. Well, I don't know. Before we get into season two, let, let's maybe dive into season one just a little bit. I feel like. I remember back in like the the like era of like 2000 1999 2000 2001 I'm watching Mr. Robot and I kind of feel like this is a throwback to that time. There are still hackers out there. There's still people being hacked, companies being hacked, but the conspiratorial nature of everything, this kind of shadow corporation, evil corp yeah, all this stuff. It seems a little old school. I'm, I'm curious what you thought, like as someone who, you know, I'm, I'm assuming back in 2000, you weren't really hacking or, you know, in the tech 12. world. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, how does this come off to you? Does this seem like old school throwback material? Does this seem contemporary to all. you? It felt super contemporary to me because uh, I guess what I equated F Society to was stuff like, you know, Anonymous and LulzSec. Um uh, WikiLeaks and that sort of stuff, uh, you know, things that have been happening over the last couple of years on a global scale of, you know, hackers just kind of taking what their idea of social justice is into their own hands. And, you know, um, the group F Society, their spokespeople wear these kind of like Monopoly man or Mr. Peanut man looking masks over their face. And I mean, I saw that and it immediately kind of called back to mind the Guy Fox masks that Anonymous uses. Please don't hack me for mentioning Anonymous's name. You know, it's interesting. Like, um, the I've talked to a few people in the hacker community about the show, and there are mixed opinions. Some people refuse to watch it. You know, they want to mm-hmm. remain pure. Some watch it and give it, you know, huge, you know, kudos for, uh, you know, a lot of the code 
you know, presented on computer screens is accurate. Um, there are a lot of embedded things. In fact, like, uh, I think in this, like in season two, there's like a QR code shown at one mm-hmm. point and the QR code actually leads to a real life website that you can actually visit. I mean, there are a lot of little things. In fact, okay, so we can talk about the way season two was rolled out. They basically showed it on Facebook. Uh, well, first, they had like an event on Facebook kind of like promoting the show. And it was kind of like a Facebook live event where it was just like, you know, kind of talking to people involved with the show. And then they essentially pretended that the Facebook live broadcast was hacked. And like right in the middle of it, you know, a snowy screen, you know, kind of comes on. And then F Society, the the hacker group from the show, supposedly like takes over the Facebook live and then they say, we're going to show you, you know, the first episode of uh, of Mr. Robot season two, you know, mm-hmm. and for a limited. T- and so they show it on Facebook Live and then that happened and then that immediately disappeared. But then uh, they posted it on Twitter, which was fascinating because I think that's the first time Twitter has like premiered uh, the first episode of like a popular show in its entirety. So I, I happened to watch the first like part one of uh episode season uh episode, <laughs> episode one, one of season it's so confusing part one of episode one of season two i watched uh entirely on twitter um it's the first time i've ever done anything like that and it was fascinating but they 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 work hard the show works hard to kind of make you feel like f society is is really a thing and mm-hmm. they really are kind of like you know, trying to get you to inhabit this world of like these counterculture hackers. Um, so, I mean, did that come off as corny to you? Did you see any of that promotion? Did it feel authentic? Like, how'd that come off to you? I didn't actually realize that they were playing it as F Society was like hacking the the you know official Twitter to bring you the content. I, it, I just saw that it was, you know, uh, episode episode one part one of episode one of season two. Um, I just saw that it was streaming. So I was like, Oh, I'll stream it because you, you know, there was a sense of not knowing when they were going to take it down or how long that was going to be up for, which that kind of felt real. And, you know, uh, another like little Easter egg that they put in, in the episode was um, they made reference to an actual real life hacktivist known as the jester. Right. You know, because uh, there was a ransomware thing, and they put his logo out there, and like this is a real dude. And uh, if you've, if you guys out there have never heard of the Jester, he's a guy who's known for making like cyber attacks on jihadi websites. Easy, they're listening. I'm well, just you know, I'm just this has been reported elsewhere, so they're going to go after those people and not me. I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. Update your um, <laughs> Yes, yes. But you know, he's also. He's he's kind of like a, a how do how do you say like a free agent someone who doesn't really necessarily have a lot of alliances within the hacker community. It seems like he does his own thing. Well, I mean, so. it's interesting that what you bring that up because what Mister Robot does very well is it merges the real world with this fictional world. I would say better than the vast majority of television shows out there. I would almost call this kind of um, Fight Club meets some sort of, I don't know what hacker property, like what hacker movie or TV show that was really good, but it it seems like Fight Club for hackers, like Fight Club uh, meets, you know, the world of hacking. And 
what's interesting is they they don't just deal with I've watched other shows that supposedly involve hackers. But what they do in this show is they involve the worlds of finance, the world of banking, mm. uh, politics, uh, television media. Uh, they really it's a sophisticated show. Uh, yeah. Sam Esmiel is the creator and the writer, and I'm fascinated with his work. I want to see him do movies. I want to see him do more television shows. Um, so, I mean, so season two, uh, what we've seen so far, what'd you think? I really liked it, but it seems uh, like they're going to take that financial aspect that you talked about and kind of really run away with it this season. So I'm really excited about that because, you know, um, if you are looking at how Americans spend money, like most most of us don't really carry around a lot of cash anymore. So a lot of us are just spending with our credit cards or debit cards. Oh, wait, knowing. wait, wait, wait. We didn't talk about what happened like the end of season one. Do you remember what happened in the at the end of season one? Yeah. So can you break that right. down? Because it, it, it relates directly to what you're saying. Right. So what F society's big, I guess, F you to society was, it was like, well, their big agenda is that they don't like that people have debts. They don't like that banks take ordinary people and just basically rule their lives through debt. So what they do is that they basically encrypt all the digital um they create a program and a virus and it encrypts all the, like, I guess the digital paper, not a paper trail, but the digital trail, all the digital records of, uh, my bank account, your bank account, your debt, my debt, all of our, all of our financial information, they encrypt it and then they delete the decryption key. And basically what it, what it does is that it renders all these banks absolutely useless because they've lost all their financial data. They can no longer read all of that. So we've basically just erased money. People start hoarding, like, uh, and in season two, you hear a newscaster say that people are hoarding cash because we can't access any of our money. Yeah. And that, in that respect, that's what made me, uh, think of Fight Club because in Fight Club, the idea, spoilers for Fight Club, if you haven't seen that, 15, 20-year-old movie? It's really old. The statute um, of limitations on spoilers has expired for Fight Club. Yes. Um, the idea was that they wanted to blow up the IRS so that every I – be, I believe it was the IRS uh, – so that everyone's tax records and you know the record of any debt that they had would be uh, erased. Uh, I think it was like not – it was either IRS or credit companies or both – but basically your your debt history would be erased. So that's the same thing that or same kind of thing that's going on here. And so I mean, I guess what I want to know is in the age of Edward Snowden, who is now still in exile in Russia and being called by everyone including Obama, uh you know, he's being referred to as you know, this traitor, he broke the law, he needs to, you know, be brought to justice. Uh, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a conservative or a liberal Democrat Republican issue. You know, many people in government, you know, seem to want him to be called to account, even though, uh, many in government have also admitted that, you know, his, some of his whistleblowing activities have actually exposed some problems in the intelligence community. And, uh, some change has been affected, uh, by what Edward Snowden did. So, there's this weird dichotomy where there are some people who look at Edward Snowden as this hero figure and others seem to think of him as a criminal. And and when I say others, I mean, not just the super hardcore conservative types, 
But, you know, even people who you would, you know, normally associate with liberals and, you know, people who are kind of like open free thinkers, you know, a lot of these people still think he, you know, consider him a criminal. So, like, how do you think, um, like, like, did that, you feel like that set the stage for Mr. Robot, like in this conversation? Because I don't think we can kind of disengage Snowden from Mr. Robot. I think the two are linked. I definitely think his his prominence in the news and just kind of the realization of just how much the NSA could track us and just how much information they had. I definitely think that was one of the things that set the stage for Mr. Robot to be as popular and as relevant as it is. But it's not just Edward Snowden. It's also things like the Sony hack. It's like, you know, the idea that we have Chinese hackers who are trying to get into our information main mainframes or whatever it is that they uh, talk about on the news. It's stuff like the Ashley Madison hack last year, which was also mentioned in season one of Mr. Robot. Like all of these things seem to be clustering together and just happening. So I think all of that and just like kind of the fortuitous timing of when the show aired just kind of dovetailed together to create this like whirlwind of awareness and just, you know, when you watch Mr. Robot and you know, you think about what's happening in real life and then you watch it and a similar thing is happening on, on the on the show and just kind of the parallels between F Society and Anonymous and LulzSec and all those groups like that. I just think, you know, it's just a kind of a weird, you know, that uh, the snake eating its tail type thing. Did, did art inspire real life or did real life inspire art? I, I, I don't seem to know where it ends and where it begins. Well, in this case, I think it's clear that real life inspired art because Mr. Robot just came out last year. And even if he was been writing, even if he was uh, started writing this before two, 2015, I mean, Snowden is, you know, several that whole story is several years old now. So I think clearly reality inspired all of this. And I just what I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is with all of this in play with um Edward Snowden play, the various famous hacks that you mentioned in play, you had the fappening. I don't oh, know if yes. you mentioned the, that. I did not you know? mention the fappening, yeah. but you're right about the fappening. <laughs> the fappening was huge. Um, so with all of this kind of stuff happening, it makes me wonder what uh, Sam Esmiel's point is with the show. Because if I just take it at face value, it seems like the point is be paranoid. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust government. Don't Don't trust banking systems. Don't trust computer companies. It's a glorious show. And it's one... It's, easily one of my favorite shows, but it does seem to have a very cynical view of the world. Have you been able to glean any particular point from Mr. Robot? It's it's very kind of existential despair-like, the tone of the show. I, I have many friends who have said, oh, I really like Mr. Robot's a really good show, but it's just so depressing, which I found strange because I didn't find it all that depressing while I was watching it. I just found it really exciting. But well, you were a lord mistress of darkness, so of course you would not. <laughs> okay. I mean, of course, I mean, you know, how would that? Uh, my, you know, my soul is my soul is empty and black like the night sky. Yeah, no, cold, um, cold, cold. Yeah, but um, what, what was I thinking? Uh, what was <laughs> you you're, you're talking about? How all your weak friends think it's depressing, and you think it's just a joyous romp. Well, I don't know if I would call it a joyous romp, but uh, I think maybe there's a larger point about society and how we use technology as a crutch and maybe we've used it as a crutch so much that we're now like 
hobbled without it. We can't, like, I think the whole part about erasing debt and just the whole money thing, it's kind of showing us how we've become so reliant on all this technology that maybe as a society we don't know how to function anymore without it. And that is potentially dangerous and bad. I think that might be the point, or it's the only point that I can glean from it. We also forgot to mention that in season one, he's kind of shown uh, to us as a kind of hacker superhero, because in the first few episodes, we see him basically come to the rescue of several people who are kind of either being bullied or abused or mistreated in some way. And he comes to their aid. Uh, by covertly hacking the abuser, you know, or the, mm. the perpetrator of, you know, whatever bad deeds. And he like secretly hacks them. And I kind of like, I miss that because as season one began this, this arc into like this larger conspiracy theory, his whole superhero hacker thing kind of went by the wayside. So I kind of miss that. I, I feel like I could watch a show just about a, sa- a hacker superhero, you know, secretly helping people. So that was a nice mm-hmm. entry into the story. Now I feel like we're in a world where if you think things like uh Illuminati and the Bilderbergs and the Rothschilds being in on some giant conspiracy, if you think that stuff is silly, I, I, I get the feeling that this might be maybe hard for you to really get into. And I, I've actually talked to a couple of friends who are, you know, more into the big banking finance world, the investment mm-hmm. world. And interestingly enough, those are the people who don't seem to get Mr. Robot. Really? And, yeah. And I, and I feel like it has something to do with the whole conspiracy theory nature of, you know, how the show begins its arc, you know, toward the end of season one. I mean, if you remember, like season, like uh, the end, the very end of season one was amazing because how does it end? Uh, we drive into this driveway and we enter this mansion and it's like this international cabal of like rich people from the Middle East, Africa, Europe, America. And they're all smoking cigars in this darkened room. <laughs> I mean, it's like the ultimate cliche of, you know, international conspiracy theories. So I get why some people who actually do deal in finance and do, you know, work in the world of investing and that kind of thing and international investing might not take it that seriously. But it really plays to the conspiracy, you know, the conspiracy theory part of people's imaginations. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that you say your finance friends are kind of skeptical of the show, it makes me think that maybe they're in on the conspiracy just <laughs> trying to, like, nudge you away from the right path. Because that, like, I think one of the things that freaked me out, and in a good way, but also kind of in a scary way when I was watching Mr. Robot and the whole, what they do with the, the finance plot line, is that we are increasingly becoming a cashless society. You know, there are places in Scandinavia who their treasury uh, departments have basically said, we aim to eliminate all physical currency by like 2020 or 2030. I think Denmark is one of them. And like, I had an instant today where I was trying to flag down a cab and the cab, the cabbie was like, I don't take um, credit card. And oh, that like, happened to me today too. Same thing. Right? Yes. So then you're just like, and then I was sitting there and I was just like, oh man, I'm boned. I can't, I have to wait for a guy who can take a card. And then, you know, in America, we're a country that doesn't really value its cash anymore in, in the sense that, 
you know, um, we're using credit cards, we're using debit cards, I'm Venmoing my friends who've paid a bill on the credit card. So we're just dealing in basically electronic bits and, and, you know, data sent over a wireless channel. None of that is really real. We're not on the gold standard anymore. And a lot of, um, a lot of finance experts will say stuff like, oh, that's tin foil hat stuff. All you need, all you need is like the world to lose all of electricity and then we all have no money. And I watched Mr. Robot and I legit was like, all right, I'm going to need to start a cash under the mattress fund somewhere <laughs> just in case all of this happens. You well, know, I just had a long conversation with a hacker friend who is obsessed, still obsessed with Bitcoin and also obsessed with a new form of digital currency called Ethereum. And what? yeah, it, it, it's a new kind of uh, digital currency that operates using, I guess, blockchain technology. I'm not really conversant in digital currency. It's not my thing. But yeah, I, I'm. he's slowly convincing me that I need to kind of get on the, the Bitcoin or the digital currency train, uh, even though it's been out there for a while. Um, there are different kinds of digital currency kind of battling for supremacy out there on the regular web and on the dark web. And what this show is doing, in my opinion, is well, it's it's exposing years ago. And the reason why I referred back to like 1999, 2000, 2001, that's pretty much back when I was in my Elliot phase. That's back when <laughs> I was super paranoid about everything digital. And you might say, well, why? You know, were you reading too many books? No, it's because I was kind of dabbling and hacking a bit myself. And when you see what's possible um, through hacking people's computers and hacking systems, it's scary because th you then quickly realize just how vulnerable everything is, whether it's currency, whether it's your webcam. I mean, I'll just, you know, just the one of the promotional items from Mr. Robot is a webcam cover. I, and I, I just I, I can't get over it. It's so funny to me that this is their one of their promotional items. And if you're just a fan of the show and you get this little webcam co cover for Mr. Robot, it has the Mr. Robot logo, the USA Networks logo on it, and you put it on your laptop, it's kind of like a cool, hey, kitschy kind of like, ah, ha, ha, mm -hmm. you know, conspiracy theory, whatever. Hey, guess what? It is not hard to go search right now and find numerous news stories about just how easy it is to hack someone's webcam and watch them as they walk around. Uh, in their home, naked or otherwise. And season one showed this in action. Uh, one of the main plot points in season one, Mr. Uh, season one of Mr. Robot showed uh, someone being hacked through their webcam. And so, again, this is like real life merging into fiction. And you know who else uses a, a cover for his webcam? Mark Zuckerberg. He was there was a photo of him at he was doing some sort of thing and someone took a screen grab and they looked at his uh, computer in the background and he had a webcam cover. So maybe he's a Mr. Robot fan, too. Or well, not, yeah. only, not only did he have his webcam covered, he also had the audio ports on his uh, laptop, his Mac uh, laptop covered. Uh, that's a little detail some people didn't notice, like the webcam was covered, oh, but dang. he also yeah, he also had the audio ports covered. But I'm going to do you even one better. The head of the FBI, James Comey has admitted to covering his webcam, okay? The, if the head of the FBI, James Comey, and I'm not ma making this up, people out there, you can go look this up yourself, the head of the FBI, James Comey, has admitted to covering his webcam. If the head of the FBI is doing that, 
I think it's safe to say that maybe you want to cover your webcam. Maybe. Sort of, kind of. Do you got an extra Mr. Robot webcam cover? <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm actually trying to get them to send me more because I, I, I want to give them out to friends. But yeah, I mean, like, so what Mr. Robot is doing is it's, it's exposing the mainstream public. To, it, it's very, it's, it's kind of tricky because it's like, while it's kind of delving into these wild conspiracy theories that, you know, depending upon your viewpoint may or may not be that wild. But while it's del- delving into these conspiracy theories, it's also exposing the mainstream public to very real exploits. You know, how your computer can be taken over by someone uh, with a CD that, you know, yes, a lot of computers no longer have CD drives. But, you know, if you do have a CD drive or, yeah, I mean, or a USB drive, yes, your computer can be infected and compromised by someone who gives you uh, a malicious piece of software via a CD-ROM, a DVD, a USB. Uh, be careful. By the way, this is something so many people don't know. Just putting in a foreign USB drive into your computer? No, that's not. You don't do that. That's that's yeah. a bad move. You know, it was one uh, plot point that when I was watching season one kind of really struck me was the the bit where they break into spoilers for season one you were warned um though they break into a security facility um i forget what the name of it was but they use basically what looks like a raspberry pi to hack the thermostat yeah and you know i, I love that i think that was one of the first times i've seen raspberry pi in a show that might be the first time ever I don't ever remember seeing that being referenced anywhere else ever. Yeah. And for those of you guys out there who don't know what Raspberry Pi is, it's basically a very, like, I want to say credit card sized computer that you can use to do very basic functions. Like, I think one of the, there's a big DIY community around it. It's really affordable. It's not super expensive. And, like, some projects I've seen have been like, oh, you can program it to be a kind of Wi-Fi hotspot or you can make it into a DIY internet of things-esque smart lamp computer thing. You can basically program it to do very simple functions and it's super cheap. And speaking of the internet of things... Yes, in, I, I was wondering if you were going to go there. That, this I is my favorite thing. I was going to go there. In, in season one... Uh, oh my god. So complicated. Episode in one. Part, uh, part one. one. Episode one. Season two. Yes. That. Um, so they basically show the general console of Evil Corp, and she's living in a smart apartment, smart home. You know, that. What, what I guess what that means is, like, a Nest Cam and, like, smart temperature things and smart home lighting and all these things. Shower are, control. Shower controls, uh, Sonos music speaker type lighting. things. Lighting. And she basically is in the shower, minding her own business, doing her thing, and everything starts going out of control. She can't control the water. She can't control the lighting. The music goes crazy. She can't control anything, and her house has basically been taken over. That has real-life parallels. I think a couple of months ago there was a story about smart home users. There, There's just no way, really... Uh, when their smart home temperature controls go out of whack, so their houses were just basically, they couldn't lower the temperature, so they were either trying to boil them or they couldn't raise the temperature and it was trying to freeze them to death. So, like, the idea that you can't control your home or, or a hacker can just hack into your smart home and basically make your life hell and evict you due to inconvenience, that's that's a real thing, and it freaked me out. It's interesting because 
the Internet of Things, and not to kind of get off track, but things like the Internet of Things and back to the idea of police forces using robots uh, responsibly, all of these things assume kind of a best case scenario. But the security isn't there for Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. Um, The security isn't there for, I remember the first time Apple embedded webcams, like they moved from their external webcams and they embedded webcams into the laptops. At this point in time, I I can't remember, this is like six, seven, eight years ago. This is like a long time ago. At this point in time, I had already been very well acquainted with dark web uh, websites uh, that allow you to view people's webcams remotely without their knowledge, without turning on the little green light or whatever light you have that indicates that your webcam is on. I already had very, you know, old knowledge of these kind of things around. So when, you know, being around, so when Apple embedded their webcam in the computer itself, okay, man, this is now I sound like Elliot. Two things occurred to me. (laughs) One, I thought, okay, why isn't there like a cover? Why isn't there like kind of like an autumn, like, you know, some hardware, a piece of hardware that people can slide over, you know, what, you know, cause people, most people are going to keep their laptop open all the time unless they're traveling one. And two, it made me think of George Orwell. Do you remember like the televisions in George Orwell that like could basically watch you? Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yep. Yeah. So I, it made me I'll, think of that. I want you to know, I just put a post-it over my website. <laughs> <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do this. It's Elliot's fault. It's not my fault. It's no, Mr. Robot's know, fault. You know, like when you get an extra Mr. Robot webcam <laughs> swag cover, you know, send one my way because I'm going to run yes. out of post-its at this rate. Yes, I will bless you. But the world of Mr. Robot is giving people a great education. I think the problem, though, is because it mixes these fantastical conspiracy theory plot points in with the very real uh, exploits that are possible, I suspect many people watching who aren't necessarily maybe that tech savvy will assume that the hacks they're watching are kind of whiz bang TV, you know, tropes, you know, kind of like, oh, the magic of TV. I'm sure that couldn't Mm -hmm. happen in real life. And, you know, we're here to tell you, pay close attention to Mr. Robot. Many of the hacks that you see on screen are things that are absolutely possible in the real life. We're this is not hyperbole. We're not trying to scare you. It's just the the show producers, Sam Esmiel and the show producers are very good at what they do and they clearly are consulting real hackers because this is the best fake hacking I've ever seen and a lot of it has its roots in reality. Definitely consulting real hackers and if you know if six Emmy nominations yesterday wasn't enough proof, you know, they've got six. Six. Why don't you just say that one more time? Six. Mark of the Beast, you're part of the conspiracy. I knew it. <laughs> oh, God. You walked right into that. I, I, don't, I, I can't believe you didn't understand where that was going. Anyway, so that's uh, Mr. Robot. We encourage you strongly to watch it. Uh, watch closely for the hacking exploits uh, that will roll out in the rest of the episodes in season two. Uh, We can't guarantee that they're all real, but based on the history of the show, most of the hacks will likely have some root in reality. Uh, So it's a good place to kind of um, not only get paranoid, but maybe kind of brush up uh, and and get a little more tech savvy. 
or get post-its and just put them over your webcam. Uh, well, before we sign off, I want to remind you guys to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, you can visit us on SoundCloud and Stitcher and on Google Play. And if you just want to learn more about the show, you can go to www dot marsmagazine.com and it's the same name on twitter we're at mars magazine and with that we will put an end to this episode of the mars magazine broadcast this has been a dario strange with nick song and we will see you in the future